the NCAA came out within the last hour and a half canceling the men's and women's college basketball tournaments. There will be no March Madness in 2020. But the NHL just announcing that they are pausing the season due to the coronavirus. And the NBA has made the decision. They have just announced that they are suspending play, finishing after tonight's games. They're going to let tonight's games finish. But starting tomorrow... It's Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. And the new coronavirus is encroaching on American sports fast. Utah Jazz center Rudy Gobert has just tested positive, and life as we know it is about to change. As far as the golf world is concerned, this is all happening the night before the Players' Championship is supposed to begin. It's the PGA Tour's flagship event, it's played at TPC Sawgrass, right next to the Tour's headquarters, and it typically draws the strongest field of any golf tournament in the world. This year, there are 144 players representing 23 different countries, and despite the news from the NBA, the tournament begins as normal on Thursday morning, including thousands of fans in attendance. Opening round of the players from TPC Sawgrass, Ponte Vedra Beach, and the famed 17th. This is Corey Connors taking on a back At noon on Thursday, just as Hideki Matsuyama is polishing off a course record tying 63, Commissioner Jay Monahan announces that the rest of the players as well as every tournament through the Valero Texas Open, will be played without fans. And then 10 hours later, as news continues to develop, players receive a text message from the PGA Tour with another announcement. We're obviously incredibly disappointed to suspend the PGA Tour season for our players and our fans. 91 days later, a stripped-down PGA Tour returns to competition at the Charles Schwab Challenge at Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth. It's the first proper, nationally televised live sporting event since March, meaning golf was the last sport to keep playing and the first one to come back. And as the pandemic rages on throughout the summer and into the fall and the winter and to this day, the PGA Tour plays on. Since the cancellation of the players, and through last week's Century Tournament of Champions, the Tour has conducted 27 tournaments, including three majors, without a disaster. Of course, there have been positive tests and no shortage of stressful moments. But despite all that, the PGA Tour's return to play can't be described as anything but a remarkable feat. So, how did they do it? How did golf go from sending everyone home and wiping the calendar to safely staging tournaments around the continent in the middle of a pandemic. I'm Daniel Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in the world of golf. Today's episode will take you behind the scenes of the demise and then the resurrection of the 2020 PGA Tour season. From the boardroom conversations on that frantic Thursday at TPC Sawgrass, to the painful decision to stop the season, to the painstaking effort to return, to the challenges they faced once play resumed, and everything in between. We'll be joined by Golf Digest editorial director Max Adler, who spoke to higher-ups at the PGA Tour, health experts, tournament directors, and PGA Tour players for a piece that debuts in the latest issue of Golf Digest. The piece is called How Golf Won. And a quick note about that title, we're not saying golf won the pandemic because no one wins a pandemic. More than 350,000 Americans have died from COVID-19, and the virus continues to run rampant in this country to this day. So when we say golf won, we mean in a very narrow sense. The PGA Tour was able to carry on, mostly safely and responsibly. 
And in these crazy times, that alone counts as a victory. Let's start at the beginning. So the week before the players is the Arnold Palmer Invitational at Bay Hill. And throughout that whole week, there was not one word of communication from the tour to players about the virus. And that may seem wild in hindsight, but again, it's important to remember just how quickly everything seemed to be happening back in early March. And we had heard about potentially disastrous viruses before. You remember SARS or swine flu or Ebola. But those kind of just went away without making a huge impact here in the U.S., or at least as far as sports are concerned. So despite warning after warning from the medical community, it didn't become clear to the general public how serious this was going to be until, really, that second week in March with the NBA. Here's Max Adler. Yeah, I mean, the American public, we pay attention to sports. Uh, Once sports start getting canceled, that's really going to ring people's bells. Um, You know, that whole week in March, it began with tennis uh, out in Indian Wells, California. The ATP tour event was canceled. Then, of course, Wednesday, you had uh, the event with basketball. And then quickly the next day, it's soccer, it's the WNBA, it's college sporting events. And golf was criticized pretty heavily at the time for not being so quick and reflexive. Uh, They took their time a little bit more. They said, hey, we're going to try to play without fans this weekend. We're going to carry on until you know, 24 hours later and said, okay, we're going to postpone along with everybody else. A big question I've had, and I assume plenty of you did as well, is what happened between those two announcements, between Jay Monahan saying they're going to continue playing, but without fans, and then later that night when he pulls the plug? And the answer is not a sexy one. It's meetings. Long, stressful meetings. Here's a clip of Max's interview with Jay Monahan. On Thursday, we were, I was in a meeting from 6.30 in the morning to 9.30 at night. Thursday was a meeting from 6.30 in the morning to 9.30 yeah. at night. We were up in the boardroom at TBC Sunrise. Yeah. You, know, you know, moving out, making phone calls, going talk talking to certain mm-hmm. people. For the most part, that's where we were the entire day. As for what went into the change in position from carrying on without fans to canceling altogether, you might think the tour took its lead from other sports leagues, but that's not the case. As the tour's chief of operations, Tyler Dennis, told Max, they actually took their lead from an institution just down the road. Uh, the thing I re- the thing I remember that where we all sort of thought, wow, that's that's pretty significant, and it's just down the road is when Disney World they were closing. Uh, I think that for whatever reason, just because it's a very large thing, very important to the state of Florida, and um, you know, just down the road, that kind of hit certainly hit me right between the eyes to think, wow, this is uh, this is pretty serious. Once that happened, the tour execs knew they were in a wholly unfamiliar situation. Now, of course, golf is better suited to social distancing than arena contact sports like basketball. It's played outdoors on a field covering hundreds of acres. But the actual golf is, at least from a logistics standpoint, actually a pretty small part of the PGA Tour. Because the tour is not just 144 guys playing golf. You have the caddies and their families and the fans and the media and the people working in the media center and the volunteers. We could go on. With so many moving parts and with so much new information flowing in, the writing is on the wall. You basically have this boardroom filled with highly successful professionals from legal, business, broadcast backgrounds. 
and they're all looking at each other and no one has a clear answer because no one has faced this before. So what it really boiled down to was, and I think it was Laura Neal, who's head of communication said, what would a reasonable person expect us to do? And so you have an entire country watching itself shut down. And even though the tour felt like they could go on, they felt like golf was well-suited. They felt like they were all there. They could play safely without fans. How would that sit optically to a reasonable person? It would seem like they are just totally going rogue. And I think that's what changed. So the cancellation text goes out to players around 10 p.m. And then right after, they get another text saying it's not just the players that's canceled, it's the next three events also, which leads right up to the Masters. And then sure enough, the next morning, the Masters is officially postponed. As the cancellations and postponements pile up, players head to TPC Sawgrass to clear out their lockers, and they give interviews. And watching today, the video of these interviews are sort of uncomfortable to watch, The guys are surrounded by media members who are not six feet away, and no one is wearing a mask. But remember, these were the early days of all this, and that was before masks became a staple in every American's wardrobe. You know, the commissioner made the right call with our our nation in in this health epidemic. It was the right call. So that, uh, like you said, in the grand scheme of things, uh, getting some golf tournaments canceled uh, or postponed or suspended, whatever you want to call it, is, is really not a big deal at all. No one knew what we were in store for. And there was definitely a sense among a lot of players that this could be a few week interruption. And um, not unlike a lot of other, you know, healthy, comfortable people in this country and across the globe, they took advantage of the time off to enjoy themselves. And especially initially when there was so little information the reflexive reaction is going to be, all right, let's let's go to the bar, let's go swimming, let's go to the beach. The PGA let's, Tour uh, executives are meeting around the clock, and virtually, of course, to try and figure out a way back. And they're also meeting with golf's other power brokers, the heads of the PGA of America, the USGA, the RNA, the European Tour, the LPGA Tour, and Augusta National. And the tour is also in close contact with the White House. The way the White House handled its response to the pandemic uh, can be debated (laughs) long into the night. Um, However, in this small purview of sports, the White House Coronavirus Task Force, it did connect all the sports leagues to one another and to sort of, you know, the leading scientific understanding of the virus, which helped them kind of make decisions. It was sort of hinted to the PGA Tour through this task force that, hey, you know, if you're thinking about returning, early June would probably make sense. There'll be, you know, enough testing by then um, and other things in place. Testing, that's step one. There's simply no way to return without being able to test every single player every single week. That and not having fans. But beyond those two things, everything is up for debate. The NBA and the NHL would end up going the bubble route, which meant putting all players and other essential personnel in a contained environment in one location where they would play all their games. But with golf, a bubble was never really a possibility. 
for a few reasons. First, PGA Tour players don't work for the PGA Tour in the same way an NBA player works for the Dallas Mavericks. PGA Tour players are independent contractors and they feel very passionately about that status. So the whole idea of telling these guys, this is where you're going to play and this is how you're going to get there and this is where you're going to stay and this is where you're going to eat, like that simply wasn't going to happen. Another reason for no bubble is there's a different set of players for each event. The Masters is a different field than the WGC FedEx St. Jude Invitational, and that's different from the Bermuda Championship. So you would have an ever-changing set of people who would need to come in and out of the bubble, and at that point it's really not a bubble at all. And then there's the competitive balance aspect. The tour comes to a new golf course every week, and of course there's a reason for that. Even if they were to pick one course and say, okay, we're going to play that out the rest of the season on this one golf course, which was discussed, that course is going to inherently favor one player over another. And, you know, that's just not going to fly. The players themselves play an integral role in the return to golf discussions. The tour holds meeting after meeting after meeting with both the four-man player directory board and the 16-man player advisory council, which includes stars like Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, and John Rahm. And these are, by all accounts, lively and engaged discussions. Here's what Andy Pastor, the tour's chief tournaments and competitions officer, told Max. You know, one of the things that I'm most proud of, uh, and, and I'm still astonished by it, Max, is the fact that we have 16 players on our player advisory council mm-hmm. and four player directors. And of those seven calls that we did with the pack, not once was a player missing. Andrew Bonlahiri, who was in India, I mean, getting up in the middle of the night, and he was always the first one to dial in. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Everything has to be reimagined. From the big questions, like how will players travel from city to city, and who will be allowed on-site at tournaments, to the more nuanced X's and O's details, like how will players exchange scorecards, and how will the tour handle giving and taking away tour cards at the end of the year. Nothing is off limits in these discussions. One of the most fascinating things was, and I never really understood how close the tour was to playing without caddies. It was seriously discussed before the return. There was this faction of guys who said, okay, let's do it. I want to play. If this is what we have to do, let's go do it. But then there was this other faction of guys who consider their caddy an integral part of their team. It's critical to how do they perform and they don't want to go play inferior golf because they don't want to have their career derailed they need their critical partner alongside them if you're going to gamble on golf you may as well do it right and for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it we have the podcast for you be right is golf digest weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest pga tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season that's a gambling term by the way with thoughts from some of fantasy sports's brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf while we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week we can guarantee you'll be well informed and entertained along the way so stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. It's not just the players that need to sign off on the plan. The tour also needs to convince the hosts of the individual tournaments and the cities that they play in to let them bring this traveling show into town 
amid the pandemic. From a sort of politics and PR standpoint, the tour handled it really well, approaching every city and saying, hey, this is what we'd like to do to come back to play golf now. We realize the virus situation in your city is probably different than it is in another city and you have your own you know various uh interests and you know concerns and we want to work with you to solve it if possible and so what they had was the return to golf road show here's tyler dennis again with details on what the return to golf road show actually looked like our goal was to work with every place we needed to go every every location uh and whomever needed to be involved so so usually that was the governor's office all the way down to the local city health inspector and we got them all on a call and we we went through in detail um and myself and andy levinson um and another uh colleague of ours you know, a to z everything in detail that we do and um, we, you know, from the outset, we decided, look, we're just going to be collaborative in this. We're going to get everybody in the tent, so to speak, knowing that every place was a little bit different, which they were. You know, they yeah. had different situations with the virus. They had different regulations and things in place. And so we were flexible. And that's and we're still doing that, by the way. I just did it yesterday. Some places are down to host and some aren't. The John Deere Classic, for example, was canceled because the state of Illinois was in phase three of their reopening and not the required stage five. So it's really a tournament by tournament situation. The tour will do its part, but a lot of the logistical responsibility falls on the organizers of the specific event. If there's one, you know, telling story that sort of shows just how complex a golf tournament can be to run safely, I was talking to Nathan Groob, who's the tournament director for the Travelers up in Hartford, Connecticut. And at one point, it's like, how are we going to get coffee to the volunteers? And volunteers, you know, there's these wonderful, wonderful souls who'll get up at four in the morning, you know, to do things like, you know, work security, make sure the range is set, you know, handle parking, which there's still a lot of that, even without fans. And all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, so how do we get coffee to them? All right, where's that coffee coming from? Have they been tested? When it comes in with a truck, has that driver been tested? When it's distributed, is that another person who then has to have that role? And how will their testing be administered? And then, so something as simple as like some hot beverage service opens up just a whole other layer of complications. By the way, Groove came through for the volunteers. They did indeed figure out a way to get them coffee safely. In April, the PGA Tour, along with all the other governing bodies, release a new schedule. The PGA Tour is set to return on June 11th at Colonial, which seemed quite ambitious at the time. The PGA Championship moves to August, the US Open to September, and the Masters to November. But the work isn't even close to finished because the tour still has to hammer out details of what exactly a tournament would look like, and the players still have to sign off on that. So the tour pieces together a 40-slide presentation outlining their plan, which is a lot. They're going to test everyone, every single day. They're going to have caddies carry wipes and wipe down clubs after each shot their players hit. The players themselves are going to rake their own bunkers, 
stuff like that. And it's not until his team presents this plan to the Player Advisory Council that Monaghan realizes just how wild this whole thing sounds. But I got off that call going, oh boy. Mm -hmm. you know, we've put all this time into this and it's a plan that's not gonna work. <laughs> and if we don't have a plan that works, we've already announced our schedule. Yeah. We're not coming back. Right, right. So there was a period there of probably seven days, seven to 10 days where we were working around the clock and trying to adjust to that. Eventually, the necessary parties agree on a plan for how tour events would function. There would be a tour chartered flight from tournament to tournament, and you need a negative test result to get on the flight. Players would be given tests upon arrival to every tournament and would not be permitted on the grounds of the club until they tested negative. Players would be required to wear face coverings indoors at all times. Players would be allowed their caddy, swing coach, and trainer on site, but not their families or agents. And if a player tests positive, he'll receive $100,000 and be forced to self-isolate for a minimum of 10 days. As far as eligibility goes, given the scheduling changes, no one would lose their tour card at the end of the season, and no Corn Ferry players would graduate and get their PGA Tour cards. And the tour worked with high-level U.S. government to deem golfers essential workers, which allowed international players to circumvent travel bans and get back into the U.S. so long as they quarantined upon arrival. But again, no bubble, no forcing players to play in this event or take this flight, or even designating one hotel for them to stay in. If a guy wants to fly privately to an event, he's gonna. And if a guy wants to rent an Airbnb or stay in a friend's guest house for the week, he can. The NBA and the NHL would rely on strict mandates to keep things safe. There was one NBA player who left the bubble briefly to pick up a food delivery, and he was forced to isolate for 10 days. But the PGA Tour, they would rely more on trust. It sort of sounds like treacle, but I really think it was something like the ethos of golf that helped the season go on. You know, players keep their own scores. They call penalties on themselves. This is sort of part of the fabric of what it means to be a golfer. And without those things, you know, competitive golf doesn't happen. And with golf in the pandemic, that same sort of, self-accountability extended beyond the golf course. You know, players had to trust each other that they were gonna wear masks. They were going to practice social distancing. They were gonna, you know, really do their part to not get sick, not spread the virus, because if it happened out on tour in a, in a major way, it would have shut down and all of their opportunities to play golf, um, you know, would have ceased then. The PGA Tour returns this week with the Charles Schwab Challenge at Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth. Organizers have precautions in place as sports ends a three-month hiatus due to coronavirus. Things like the PGA no Tour officially returns with Ryan Palmer's first tee shot at Colonial. It's June 11th. Major League Baseball wouldn't have its opening day until July 23rd. The NBA wouldn't return until July 30th. The NHL on August 1st. So golf is the first one back by a not insignificant margin, and it enjoys its weeks in the sun. DraftKings offers a millionaire maker contest for the Charles Schwab. 
something it usually only does for majors. And all kinds of betting records are broken because gamblers had pent up demand and it had to go somewhere. So week one of the return goes swimmingly. No positive tests, a compelling battle down the stretch, a playoff at the end. Everyone's happy, good feelings all around. But week two, at the RBC Heritage in South Carolina, things get a little more interesting. News breaking that Nick Watney has tested positive for coronavirus, the first in the two weeks that the PGA Tour has been back following the three-month shutdown. You know, I think it was Justin Thomas who remarked to Golf Channel, you know, it's a zoo out there. People out at bars, restaurants, going on with their lives as if the coronavirus pandemic was a non-thing. And, you know, it, it, it freaked golfers out because they thought, you know, if we're going to be going from city to city to places like this, this is pretty untenable. And yet, Watney's the only guy to test positive that week. Luckily for the tour, he didn't fly on the tour charter from Fort Worth, which would have implicated like half the field. And the guys he played with on Thursday all test negative, as does Sergio Garcia, who gave him a ride to Hilton Head on his private jet. So in this case, crisis averted. The next week, the tour heads up to Connecticut for the Travelers Championship, and things begin to move quickly. Cameron Champ tests positive and withdraws. And then Brooks Kepka, his brother Chase, Graham McDowell, and Webb Simpson all pull out because either their caddy or someone they were close to tested positive. If there was ever a moment that this thing looked destined to fail, this was it. And it turns out it was almost much, much worse. What fans didn't know was that on Friday, there was a player who woke up with severe symptoms, congestion, headache, fever, and he drove in to get tested. And it was about three hours before they got his results back, which were negative. Huge sigh of relief. But that player had been on the tour charter from Hilton Head up to Hartford. And so had he tested positive, it would have implicated, you know, half the field and he would have been in this situation where, you know, can the tournament even go on? Still, there were calls to shut the whole thing down. Fears, mostly from the outside, that this was about to spiral out of control. The players, meanwhile, maintained their trust in the protocols and Monaghan felt his team was ready. Hartford, we needed to explain where we were. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I, there was never a sense from, I never sensed, or I never felt like it was fraught, or it was, like, I, I just felt like that was the moment we were preparing for. The Travelers does indeed continue, Dustin Johnson wins, and the positive tests slow down, and the tour keeps on rolling. Through Detroit, where Bryson DeChambeau and his new body bludgeon his way to victory at the Rocket Mortgage Classic and then to Columbus for a Muirfield Village double. Colin Morikawa wins the Workday Charity Open, and then John Rahm takes the memorial to reach number one in the world. Then it's Minneapolis, where Michael Thompson is a feel-good winner. And it's Memphis, where Justin Thomas wins with bones on the bag. It's also Lake Tahoe, where Brandon Grace withdraws after feeling sick before testing positive, even though he was tied for second after 36 holes. And then to San Francisco for the PGA Championship, the first major played during the pandemic. I was one of the 30 or so writers in attendance that week, and this was the first time you really noticed the absence of fans. It was a major championship, but it felt like a college tournament. A smattering of applause here or there, but 
No buzz, no roars. Fitting then that a kid who was in college just about a year before, Colin Morikawa, gets the victory. And it's also around this time that pros start to open out about struggling to find motivation without fans. Graham McDowell says he feels like a golfing zombie. Rory McIlroy says he feels like he's just going through the motions. So for anyone who's been to a golf tournament and you scream or wave at your favorite player and he ignores you, you might think that golfers don't particularly care if fans are there one way or the other. It turns out that's not true at all. They, they do like fans. Something that's a common thread among good golfers, even down to the recreational player, is good golfers like to show off. On a certain level, that's what golf is basically about, being able to hit the shot and impress someone and hopefully draw their admiration. So yeah, it was a tough thing for these guys. It's worth noting here that even though the tour succeeded in bringing back tournament golf, there is still plenty of pain. Revenue from corporate hospitality, tickets, and pro-ams is lost, and the added logistics of staging events during the pandemic is costly. At tour headquarters, the squeeze results in a round of layoffs, which is at least one reason the topic of money at stake at each event was handled pretty delicately. Yeah, that was something I noticed about the FedEx Cup coverage was they seemed to refrain from pointing out how much each shot was worth from a financial sense. You know, purses were not cut. They're still playing for huge, huge money at the FedEx Cup. And in the context of the rest of the country and the world suffering from this deep financial hardship, you know, it just wouldn't have been in the right taste to make such a big deal out of the money. And so I thought that was a subtle but important shift uh, in the broadcasting tone towards the end of the season. Dustin Johnson wins the FedEx Cup and its $15 million grand prize, and the season ends on September 7th. And then a month later, he tests positive for COVID and has to pull out of two events that were originally slated for Asia, but moved to the West Coast for this year only. And 33 days after that positive test, this happens. And the 2020 Masters. The long-awaited Masters has a long-awaited champion in Dustin Johnson. The final men's major of the year played at an eerily quiet Augusta National, won by a COVID survivor. That is the perfect bookend to golf in 2020. We are clearly not out of the woods with this pandemic, not even close. People are still dying, and who knows, something could happen next week that completely changes the narrative. This is the furthest thing from a victory parade. But golf made the most of 2020. The PGA Tour came back first and, to this day, has had less than 20 players test positive through 27 events. But it's not just the PGA Tour, it's golf as a whole. Rounds played were up massively this year, as were merchandise sales, and so many turned to our game as an oasis, a respite from the craziness of this year. So we say this is the year golf won because it's so rare that golf as a second tier sport leads the way in anything. You think about racial integration, gender equality, broadcast technologies, hoodies, you know, golf's always often kind of behind the curve slowly. And here was an instance where golf was the last sport to stop playing and the first to resume. And 
I think it's owed a little bit to this sort of non-reflexive behavior of golfers. You know, they just sort of, they took this problem, they assessed it. People at every level of the tournament and the organization simply worked hard. They thought it through in every direction until they could think no more. And in trusting one another to do the right thing, they pulled it off. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music for today's episode is called Shangri-La, and it's by Kelly Caster. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts, and please also leave a review. It's a big help. Thank you.